All right. Luke chapter 19, verse 30. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? These are the words of Christ. Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell them, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead and uh, went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, the owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for these words. What a beautiful passage. I pray you would help us through the eyes of faith see that day, that moment in time. May we open our hearts to your word today in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Today's message is entitled, What Do You Want With Jesus? What Do You Want With Jesus? Today, we want to begin looking at what we call the Passion Week. That is the final week of Christ's life, which began with the entry into Jerusalem on a cult that we just read and ended with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It was a long week. Now, we are going to be looking at the Passion Week for today and next Sunday and then culminating on Easter Sunday morning. I want you to be here for Easter Sunday morning. It's going to be a wonderful day, by the way. One big service, and it's the, the first time we've been able to get together in one big service since the, the beginning of the pandemic, so for a very long time, and, and I, I anticipate a wonderful day that day. But we're going to look at, at it for three Sundays beginning today, the Passion Week. And again, I don't know what kind of week you've had, but it was a long week. So many things happened during the Passion Week. On Sunday, Jesus entered the city on a colt. It seems a small thing to you and I, but in the first century in, in Israel, it made all the difference because it was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, a prophecy from Zechariah in chapter 6. On Monday, Jesus clears the temple of the money changers, and the same day, the Pharisees began plotting to have him assassinated. And this is kind of a, a hitman thing, kind of like a drive-by shooting. I, I don't know what that looked like, maybe a guy on a camel with a spear, but they were going to have him assassinated. That was, uh, that was Monday. And then on Tuesday, uh, it was spent teaching uh, uh, parables, and some of the most famous parables of Christ were taught on Tuesday of the Passion Week. That's also the day he saw a widow giving two little tiny coins as her offering and, and Jesus uh, commending her for her faith because it was all she had. 
Susie was also the day of the famous Olivet Discourse, where Jesus talked about the end times, and that was a powerful passage. You want to be sure to look at that. That was during the Passion Week. On Wednesday, the religious leaders met again to finalize plans of having Jesus killed. It was also the day that Judas came to the religious leaders and offered his services, and so they tweaked their plans a little bit uh, because of Judas. We'll look more closely at Judas next Sunday. Thursday evening was the time of the Passover, and it began as soon as sundown began. Jesus met with his disciples, as you know, in an upper room. He washed their feet and had a, a final meal with them. And in the midst of that meal, or at the conclusion of that meal, he passed bread and wine and uh, in, inaugurated this communion, this Lord's Supper. He shared with him a new commandment. He told them many times before, but he makes it formal and official on that Thursday night. He adds a commandment, 10 commandments. Now there is an 11th. And that commandment was to what? A new commandment I give you, he says, that you love one another. And then he gives his final words to his disciples. In the Gospel of John, we see this in chapter 14 and 15. He shares his heart with them. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And that beautiful discourse to his disciples as he gives his departing words to them. And from that moment, they get up and they go to Gethsemane where Jesus spends some agonizing time in prayer, finalizing those fateful decisions that he's going to make, settling it in his own heart that God the Father's will be done. And then he is betrayed with a kiss by one of his disciples, Judas, and he's arrested. He spends the rest of the night going through four mock trials all through the night. And during that very night, Peter, one of his inner group of disciples, denies him three times. On Friday morning early, Jesus would be handed over to be beaten so severely it would nearly kill him. And then finally, he was condemned to be crucified. On Friday morning, he collapses while trying to carry the cross to the place of the crucifixion, a place called Calvary. There he's stripped and crucified and mocked and his clothes divided among the soldiers. Christ makes seven famous statements during that time on the cross before he dies. And then he's taken to the tomb on Friday. Saturday is the one day of the Passion Week with, of which we have almost no information. We do know that on Saturday the tomb is sealed and guards are placed at the tomb to make sure no one goes in or comes out of the tomb. But then Sunday morning comes, which is the most significant day in human history. On Sunday, Jesus is resurrected from the dead and appears to the women at the tomb to Simon Peter. Two of the disciples that are on the road to Emmaus and then to all the disciples except for two, Judas, who at this point has taken his own life. And then, bless his heart, doubting Thomas had stepped out for a little bit and he missed the big, uh, the big uh, uh, visit with Jesus the first time. Now later on he would catch the second time, if you remember that story. Um. 
Now, that's quite a week, is it not? Again, I don't know what kind of week you've had, but this morning, I want us to consider the Passion Week, and specifically, I want to look at the first day. Specifically, or especially, Christ's entrance into Jerusalem on that colt. I told you already, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. And again, people today would think that odd. Why would you go in on a colt of all things? But it had very special meaning and significance. Every person in Jerusalem, I guarantee you, knew exactly what that meant. A prophecy fulfilled that one day a Messiah would humbly come into town riding a colt. There are three basic perspectives from that day. There is the perspective of the people at large. They are the, the masses that have been longing for and praying for a Messiah to come deliver them out of the hands of the uh, Romans. They had been praying for years, decades, and even generations for that deliverance. And they believed that a Messiah would come to lead them to victory. And so they were very happy on that day. And then you had the perspective of the religious leaders, and they were very unhappy on that day. They felt threatened by Jesus, and understandably, everything that they taught and everything that they, they uh, claimed to believe was being uh, brought into question by Jesus, and especially the fact of their corruption and their dark, evil hearts was being exposed by him, and so they wanted him dead. That was the second perspective. The third perspective was the disciples themselves. And they had their own idea of what to do with Jesus. They had listened to him for three years. They had seen the miracles that he performed. In fact, it, it, it told us in the passage a while ago that when, when uh, Jesus is going down that street and, and it's in an impromptu parade really is what it is. And everybody's putting palm branches. The other gospel writers talk about the palm branches. This passage talks about the cloaks that they put out into the, into the roadway there as he's going down. And then all of his disciples, they're there behind him. And it's a happy time for them. It's a happy day. The happiest. They're, they're hearing others say what they believe for so long, that this is the Messiah. That prophecy was being fulfilled in their hearing. And so they were shouting uh, to the dis satisfaction of the religious leaders of the time. And so we look at the, as we look at that, what was it the disciples were thinking? Everybody had an agenda. The people, the religious leaders, and even the disciples. And unfortunately, all of their agendas were wrong. Their, their answer to the question, what do you want with Jesus, was incorrect. We see a, actually a hint of their agenda after the resurrection. I've shared this verse with you before, but I find it very powerful. I was talking about something else, and so I want to revisit, and that's the beauty of God's Word. You can glean so many different things from a single verse, depending on the context of, of what is being taught. If you look with me in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, this is after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, of course, everything crashes and burns on them during the Passion Week when Jesus is arrested into their shock and horror. He's crucified and he's killed. And so Saturday comes and, and their, their world is over. And then Sunday comes and they realize not only has things not ended, but 
they realize and know now for sure Jesus has power and authority over death. So what can you do? You know, the Pharisees couldn't kill him again. The Romans couldn't harm him. There was no more arrests. There were no more trials, no more crucifixions, no more beatings for Jesus. They couldn't touch him. Literally, Jesus has regained all of his glory as a part of God. His omnipotence, his omniscience, his, his uh, transcendence, uh, all of those great characteristics that he had had all throughout the ages, now he has reclaimed. And so he meets with his disciples and they have a question for him. They want to know something. Now, what would you want with Jesus if you had seen him right after the resurrection? What would you ask him? Well, here's what the disciples ask him. It's a dumb question, by the way. I'll go ahead and tell you. Acts chapter one, verse six. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now go ahead and, and I'll get back to the rest of the passage later. But they asked this question. Lord, are you at this time going to, re this is just before the ascension, by the way. So here's the question. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, you know why that's an odd question? How much time in the last three years had Jesus taught to them about the kingdom of Israel? How many parables did he share about the kingdom of Israel? No, not that wasn't his focus at all. Jesus had shared with them about the kingdom of what? The kingdom of heaven. And Jesus ushered in the kingdom of heaven. He had all those parables. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of heaven is like that. It's the kingdom of heaven over and over and over again. He's taught them and taught them and taught them. The kingdom of heaven. Focus on the kingdom of heaven. Build up treasures for your, for your, for your time in the kingdom of heaven. Remember all of those teachings. And here at the last moment, they go to him and say, I get it. The kingdom of heaven. Woohoo. Nope. They said, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, when they ask him, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? What are they asking? Yes, when you get rid of the Romans. Because they know. They know that Jesus can literally snap his fingers and boom, they're gone. I know I would have. You probably would have. It's so odd after three years of teaching, their agenda for Jesus is political. Wow. I'm glad we don't use Jesus for politics. <laughs> Ooh. I want you to know that Jesus is so much more than that. The disciples still were clueless. They didn't realize, you know, John 1, chapter 1 tells us that everything was created through Jesus and by Jesus. They didn't realize as they were sitting at the table that the guy sitting across from them, eating falafels with them, created the universe. They ought to get it by now. And so you've got the guy who created the universe sitting across from you. What do you ask him? Hey, are you going to get rid of the Romans now? You know, I wonder if our questions for Jesus and, and when we pray are really that short-sighted. The author of the universe, the creator of life. What, what do you want with Jesus this Easter? I think it's a fair question. As we begin to look at 
the rest of the Passion Week and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus, it's kind of a waste of time if what you want with Jesus is the wrong thing. That's why it was a waste of time for the Pharisees. And so Jesus is gently trying to set them back on track, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But they misunderstood about what Jesus was all about, even after the resurrection. Now, they would learn. And we certainly live in a world that has a terrible misconception about Christ, about Christianity, about his church. They misunderstand all the time. So I did a little research and found that there is a plethora of articles and discussions theologically, both inside the church and outside the church on, online, Literally thousands of discussions about misconceptions about Jesus, what to do with Jesus. It is extraordinary, the agenda that people have with Jesus. Everything from a good luck charm to a political figure and on and on and on it goes. One of the places that I went to was livingchristian.org and they, they shared an article they called Top Misconceptions About Christianity. I just want to share with you a few and then we'll move on, that they say, number one, they say, this is, this is number one misconception, is Christianity, for example, is anti-science. Have you ever heard that? Now, there's this liberal agenda in our world and in our country in particular that they, they, they want to believe that they're on the side of science and conservatives uh, disagree with them about things, and so they must not be on the side of science, and a lot of those conservatives are Christians, so Christianity and the Bible is uh, anti-science. Of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, the Bible was not written as a scientific document. That wasn't its focus. But to be sure, it does contain a great deal of scientific fact. In fact, we haven't caught up with the Bible yet scientifically. We, we have made discoveries in my lifetime about the nature of the universe that the Bible has been clearly telling us since Genesis chapter 1. We're still trying to figure it out. And so the Bible has brilliant science in it because it was written by the one who made science. So that is a misconception that the Bible or Christianity is anti-science. That's an agenda that people have. Number two, Christians are always happy to have smooth sailing. Excuse me, Christians are always happy and have smooth sailing in their life. As much as we wish it was true, this simply isn't. Although having a sense of purpose and assurance that there is meaning to life certainly makes Christians fundamentally fulfilled, or it should, by the way. We all go through tough times and challenges, and God never promises happiness and smooth sailing in this life. In fact, he tells us just the opposite. You're going to have difficulties in this life. And there are a lot of passages about that. But we can have peace. We can have joy, even though there are difficulties. Paul says it this way to the Romans in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, says this to the church in Rome. He says, not only so, but we also rejoice and our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has, listen to this, he has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. He says, we, we have suffering, but you rejoice in that. 
because it produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character hope and God is pouring out his love on us in the midst of all of that. Number three, misconception. And this is probably the, the, the biggest misconception in our world about Christianity. It may be one of the biggest conception, uh, misconceptions inside the church as well as outside the church, but especially outside the church. And the misconception is this. Good people go to heaven. Bad people go to hell. Now, you know why that's a misconception? Yeah, we're all bad people. <laughs> if you sin... And that's what makes you bad. If you're sinless in your life, you never commit sin. That's what makes you good. And so far, you know, there's 7 billion people in the world right now alone. And so far in all of history, in all of humanity, there has been one. And that was Christ himself. And I know you remember the story where somebody comes up to Jesus and they call him good teacher. They have a question for him and so they address him by good teacher Instead of answering the question, bless you, instead of answering the question, Jesus uh, catches that and he says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. So if they saw him as good, they saw the presence of God that's in him. That's what he was trying to get across to them. And so if only good people go to heaven, you and I, everybody is in real trouble. Bad people go to hell is what so many claim. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. And that's a bad theology, they say. And then they criticize Christianity based on that false belief. They think that we believe that and teach that. The truth is we all sin. We're all imperfect and we all mess up. And if only good people go to heaven, then heaven will be completely empty. And that, would, again, may be the biggest misconception. There's also uh, this misconception in the midst of that, that Christianity is the false belief that Christians think that they are better than other people. That we're good people, they're bad people, and so we're better than other people. Now, I hope you don't believe that, but I know that that criticism and that belief system is out there in the world, that claim that we think that we're better than other people. And there is a big difference between good people and forgiven people between good people and redeemed people. Now, God calls us to be good. He expects us to do our best to be good, but it is by the grace of God and the blood of Christ and his blood alone that forgives us of our sins, that makes us good. Then there's the other side of the coin, and this is number four. If you're a Christian, you don't have to be good. Now, I like this one. It's bad theology. Paul had to deal with this very thing. He, he already had to deal with his heresy right there in the first century, just years after the resurrection. And the thinking was this, that because the blood of Christ covers me, it's powerful enough to forgive any sin, then I can just sin all I want because it's taken care of. Isn't that great? I love that. There's a little problem with that theology though. Do you know what it is? And again, Paul had to deal with this. When you and I come to faith in Christ, if we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we have become Christians, that happened because we, we have been saved by grace through faith. There is a time in our life where we surrendered ourselves to Jesus Christ 
And if you're a believer in Christ, you have to surrender. Doesn't mean you're going to be perfect, but it means you understand that he's the master and you're the servant. You're a slave to sin or you're a slave to Christ. One of those two. There is no other option in this world. And if you're a slave to Christ, you're going to do what he tells you to do. And if you can't constantly look at God's word and you think, nah, I'm not doing that. I'm not sure you've surrendered to Christ because a servant doesn't say to the master, nah, I don't think I'm going to do that. You might quit at your job. You may go to your, your boss and say, take this job and shove it. I ain't working here no more. Sing him with a song. But a servant doesn't do that to the master. The servant has surrendered themselves to the authority of the master. And if the master tells you to do something, you do it. It's obedience. And that's how we demonstrate our love to Christ. It's not how we save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. Not how we earn entrance into heaven. We can't do that. It is the blood of Christ and the mercy of God alone. But as believers in Christ, we are to obey and submit ourselves to him. So don't ever think because you're a Christian, you can just sin all you want and it's okay. That's not in the Bible. Um, Galatians chapter six, verse nine says it this way. Paul says, let us not become weary in doing good. Not for salvation. He's talking to people who have already been redeemed. He says, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Now, he could be talking about the harvest in heaven, and there is a, a law of harvest in heaven, and Jesus talked a lot about building up treasure in heaven. But in the context of this passage, I think what Paul is trying to say to the Galatian church and you and I is the harvest he's talking about is if we are doing good, if we're doing what we're supposed to do, people will be drawn to Jesus Christ. On the contrary, if you and I are mean and ugly and hateful to other people, how many people are going to come to Christ because of you or me if we behave that way? So he says, don't, don't quit. Don't. And I'm telling you, I guarantee you, you know this and I know this. Not a day goes by where we're in traffic or we're in a conversation with somebody somewhere and we just get fed up. Just, I'm fed up. We are fed up. Oh man, I've had enough of this got to put on a mask or take off the mask or I've got to do this or I've got to do that. We're fed up. There's enough in our world to make us fed up all the time. Don't let that destroy your witness to Christ. You and I are ambassadors to do good so that we can reap a harvest if we don't give up. So that's very important. Uh, and then there, number five, I believe, and I just threw this in very quickly. Christians worship three gods. I hear that sometimes as well. They just can't wrap their heads around the Trinity. It just makes their, their theological mind explode. The fact that there is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how can it be three and yet one? And it is. God is three persons and yet one God. The Lord our God is one. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, Paul says it this way, and he happens to mention the Trinity in this single sentence. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's the Son, and the love of God, that is the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Father, Son, and Spirit right there, three and one. Now, there are many other passages, but I really like that one. 
Now, there are also a couple of misconceptions, or among the many, a couple that I want to mention that I've noticed as well uh, that I encounter in church. Number one, life is boring. Luckily, there's Jesus. Life is boring. Luckily, there's Jesus. Now, let me explain that. I think people are bored, and they want to be entertained. I, I get bored, too. Life is boring. Luckily, there's Jesus. I don't want to bash people, and I'm not going to mention any name, but that's why some TV ministries and churches become mega churches. They're drawn into crowds. It's a major production, great concerts. They're pouring out tens of thousands of dollars every Sunday just to entertain, just to draw people in. Now, again, I, I want to be careful not to be overly critical. Paul says, I become all things to all men that by all means I might save some. If it's bringing people to Christ, God bless them. But if they're doing it just to entertain the crowds, just to draw people in, to make them feel good about themselves, Jesus is not in the entertainment business. He is not here to entertain us. So be careful about that. We always want to be... <laughs> Drawn to the spectacular. Don't you want to see Jesus do something spectacular? <laughs> Are you still there? Is this on? Don't you want to see Jesus? That is a loaded question, I'll admit. But I'm a preacher. That's what we do. Don't you want to see Jesus do something spectacular? Let me give you an example. John records a remarkable and disappointing conversation that Jesus had to have with a large crowd of people. Now, before I read this passage to you, this is the day after the feeding of the 5,000. Do you remember that miracle? What a miracle. Had all these people here, thousands of people, 5,000. In fact, if you were to count the children and the women, because it was 5,000 men, it may have been 15, 20, or 25,000. It was a huge group of people. And so he's been teaching them, and there's no McDonald's there on the hillside by Galilee that day, or by the Sea of Galilee, and they need food. So he says to his disciples, do you remember what he said to his disciples? You feed them. <laughs> and they thought he was nuts. He'd lost it. And they said, well, we, we, you don't have that kind of money. We don't have that kind of food. He said, okay, what do you got? And so a few fish and a few loaves, you remember the story. And Jesus took that and he miraculously manufactured fish and loaves for thousands upon thousands of people. An amazing miracle. Well, these people didn't have Facebook or Twitter, but they, they, had, they had a grapevine apparently that was working really good, just as good. And so they all went back to their towns and to their cities. That day, by, by the end of the night, everybody in the whole region had heard about Jesus making food appear out of nowhere. And they, boy, that's spectacular. They wanted to see that. So the next day, the next day, a huge mob of people appear and they go after Jesus. They go back to the place. He's not there. And they hunt him down uh, without Google Maps or anything else. They hunted down Jesus, found him in Capernaum. And they said to Jesus this in John chapter 6, verse 30. So they asked him, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you. Now, he just did this miracle of feeding thousands of people. That's not enough. <laughs> Here's what they say. What will you do? I love that question. It's so stupid. <laughs> what will you do? 
What they mean is, what are you going to do for me? What are you going to do with Jesus? Verse 31, our forefathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. They said, show us something amazing. But here's a hint. How about free bread from heaven? <laughs> That'd be good. I think they're all Baptists. Uh, they go running for the food. They were saying this. Okay, they said, okay, Jesus, hear us out. You, to convince us that you are who you are, the Messiah, you need to do a miracle. And by the way, we hadn't had lunch yet. <laughs> so there you go. They wanted to see this spectacular. And I found myself wondering, you know, of all of our prayers to God and all of our requests to Jesus, are we any different than these folks? How silly. They could have asked him anything. And this is what they want. They just want a free meal. And by the way, he stopped for a while having these crowds because they just wanted to see a show. They just wanted to be entertained. And that is a, a terrible fallacy. Another misconception. People think Christianity is all about Jesus and me. There are many people that think that. Christianity is just about Jesus and me. Now, I especially have encountered this among men. And I would say 99% of the people that I've encountered this from is men. I got this deal with Jesus. It's just Jesus and me. Just Jesus and me. I don't need to fellowship. I don't need to pray with other people. I don't need to befriend other people or worship with other people. It's just Jesus and me. <laughs> I got a special deal with Jesus. I don't need to go to church or discuss my, my private faith publicly because it's just me and Jesus. You'd be surprised at how often I encounter that as a pastor and reason why men won't go to church or they stop going to church because they have a special deal. If you're watching online, maybe you think you have a special deal. It's just you and Jesus. Well, I don't know what Bible you're reading, but that's just not biblically true. Now, there are about a million verses to counter that heresy, but let me give you just one. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is when the church is like a few days old, a week old, a month old. I mean, it's brand new. And Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. That is, by the way, you can't have a fellowship with just you. <laughs> you get that? And to the fellowship, that is the fellowship of believers, to the breaking of bread with the believers and to prayer with the believers. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. And all the believers were what? Together and had everything in common. This was a group effort. Now, salvation is not a group, group effort. When it comes to repenting of your sins, that's just you and Jesus. When it comes to his mercy in your life, his forgiveness and redemption of your life, that is you and Jesus. But at the moment of salvation, when God instills you with the Holy Spirit, he expects you to do something with that. And it's not just you and Jesus anymore. It's us. Jesus constantly talked about the kingdom. There's no such thing as a kingdom of one. What kind of kingdom is that? So it's not just you and Jesus. Or I could give you the Great Commission, the final words of Christ before ascending into heaven, and also our passage for this morning where the disciples incorrectly revealed their agenda for Jesus. So let's go back and revisit that, and we'll look at the next verses. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Says, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And here's his response. He said to, him, to them, 
It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Here's what Jesus said. They asked him, are you going to restore Israel? Are you going to beat those dirty Romans? And Jesus responded and said, it's not for you to know that. It's, it's not the question. And so he tells them two things. That is the question. That is the point of our life, of your life, my life, and the disciples' life. And all of our life boils around these two things. He says, number one, he says, that's not for you, not, not your concern, but here's your concern. Number one, you will receive what? Power. Why are you concerned about politics when you can have real power? Politics is an illusion created by men. It's an illusion of power. And if we were atheists, if there was no God, then it would be the best we could do. Listen, politics is a poor substitute for real power. Real power comes from the Holy Spirit. And it's something that politicians cannot conceive. The Romans couldn't. They had no idea. They killed Christians by the thousands, murdered them, crucified them, fed them to the lions or whatever. They had no idea in just 300 years they were going to become a Christian nation. They had no clue because they didn't realize the power of the Holy Spirit. You want to transform this country? Oh, man. It won't happen in Washington. It'll happen on your knees. That's power. So he says to them, first of all, you're going to receive power. They spent the rest of their life trying to, to, to wrap their heads spiritually around that very idea that we have power from on high. And then he says, there's something I want you to do with your power. What does he say? You will be my witnesses. Right where you are in Jerusalem. And then you're going to branch out to Judea and branch out from there to Samaria and then branch out there to the ends of the earth. Never has there been a generation ever who could accomplish that like we can. We can hop on a plane today. Well, maybe not today, but soon. <laughs> Once you get your vaccination card or whatever they require and be on the other side of the planet. We can go home, get on our keyboard and our computer or on our phone. Don't do it right now, but... You get on your phone and you can talk to people all over the earth. Never has that been possible. Every nation, every country, every language, they got apps now. You, it just translates anything you say into whatever language. It's extraordinary. Nobody's ever experienced that. So we have power and we have a calling and we have an opportunity to be Christ's witnesses in this world. And I want us to get it done. Because the sooner we get it done, the sooner Christ comes back. I believe that and I'm ready to go. All right, amen? amen. All right. Now I heard that one. That's good. Uh, so that is the Great Commission. Um, as we enter into the days preceding Easter, what do you want with Jesus? Do you have an agenda for him? Or are you willing to empty yourself and follow Jesus and his agenda instead. What do you want with Jesus? Maybe the better question is, what does Jesus want with you? Pray with me. 
Father, we come to you today acknowledging that a lot of times we have our own agenda. In our prayer life, we have an agenda. We don't spend enough time saying, not my will, but thy will be done. So help us to open our hearts right now to your agenda. What do you want from us? What do you want with us? In our life, where we are, you've planted us here in this town, in this area, among these people. What do you desire from us and through us? Father, remind us that we have, if we have surrendered to faith in Christ, that we've accepted your mercy and your grace through him and his blood on the cross, redeemed us, forgiven our sins, granted us eternal life through your mercy. What do you want us to do this week? What's your agenda for us? Father, we ask and pray as you have filled us with power through the Holy Spirit to use that power this week to change the world. A power that the corporate world does not comprehend. A power that the politicians cannot begin to approach. The power that no military in the world can overcome. And that is the power of the Holy Spirit in your people. May we be useful to your agenda this week. As you pray, no one's looking around. Can I challenge you right now to prepare your heart for Easter? It's coming two weeks. Only two weeks. And it'll be here already. I want to challenge you right now where you are with this. You and I have two weeks to invite people to come to our Easter service. Listen, here's, here's what I believe God's agenda is. And and it's my heart's desire. I want to see people saved on Easter Sunday morning. I want lives redeemed on Easter Sunday morning. And God is calling you as his ambassadors to bring them there. Would you be willing to make a commitment? God, I, I will do my best through the power of your spirit to invite those around me to come to church on Easter Sunday morning. And maybe you're the biggest introvert in the room. It doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit will give you power. Maybe you've never invited anybody to church before or not. Doesn't matter. The Holy Spirit will give you power. I promise you right now, God is preparing hearts of people you're going to encounter this week. He's preparing their, His Spirit is preparing their hearts for an encounter with you so that you can invite them to church. Will you accept that challenge? I'm going to look for opportunities. I'm going to accept the power of Holy Spirit in my life. I'm going to draw people to Christ. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to give them a big sermon. Just look them in the eye. Say, hey, I'd like to invite you to church. Would you come this Easter? It's going to be a great day. Would you accept that challenge? Maybe you want to come up and kneel right now and just lift up somebody this week in prayer right now. Or maybe God is calling you or your family to join with this fellowship and start to serve him in the kingdom of God in this place, among this fellowship. 
Or maybe you know you have not really surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ. You have not accepted his agenda. You've always had your own. And you need to surrender to Christ today and say, God, not my will, but your will be done. I surrender to Christ. He's my Savior. He's my Lord from this moment on. And God's mercy will come into your life. His forgiveness, His redemption. And your life will be transformed if you allow Him to do that. No one's looking around. Would you stand? And as everyone stands, and as you're all praying, this invitation, this opportunity is for you right now. You come.